You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Any attorney general, whether this one or another one, should not be able to interfere with the Mueller investigation in any way. They should not be able to end it. They should not be able to limit it. They should not be able to interfere with Mueller going forward and doing what he thinks is the right thing. The midterms over, the circus resumes. My guests Florence Biedemann and George Brock will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including President Emmanuel Macron's curious choice of a moment to attempt nuance, the mayor of Warsaw's decision to cancel an Independence Day march, and as one Dutchman launches a lawsuit against the ageing process, how old would you rather be? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are George Brock, journalist and visiting professor at City University, and Florence Biedemann, London Bureau Chief for Agence France Press. Welcome both. And we will start in the United States, currently grappling with the possibility that the second half of Donald Trump's first term as president might be even weirder than what has preceded it. In the hours since Trump led the Republican Party to a loss of the House of Representatives in midterm elections, he has fired his attorney general, confected yet another row with CNN, sneaking at his own party's losing candidates, and what with one thing and another has been too busy to even mention the so-called caravan of Central American migrants with which he was so preoccupied before Election Day, almost as if it was never really that big a deal. Um, George, first of all, it, it's not unusual uh, for Trump, whether deliberately or accidentally, to, to throw up such a... Uh, can you throw up an avalanche? Not really, but you know what I'm saying. There, there, there are so many stories, it's hard to know where to look. Um, should the US media be paying r- rather more attention to the sacking of Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, than it is to the disbarring from the White House of CNN's Jim Acosta? Yes, they should. It's not a good thing that the White House have done. It's not a good thing at all that the White House have done, but uh, yes, there are far more serious issues than somebody having their press pass withdrawn. Because it's the, not the, the, justified, the, but it's not in the end of the day that big a deal. This this is a thing about Trump, has isn't it? He has massively pandered to again, who knows whether it's deliberate or not, the, the the media's enthusiasm for writing stories about itself. The media loves writing stories about itself, and it's one of the things that it needs to adjust and correct. But they are learning a good many adjustments and corrections in dealing with. President Trump. Why is he was he so agitated in that press conference? Why has Trump got the hump? It's not actually because of CNN and Jim Acosta, who he's briefly made the most famous journalist in the world for 48 hours. But Jim Acosta must be cursing that he doesn't have a book out. Well, I'm sure he will. (laughs) I can bet you. I think we can absolutely bet that he will do very soon. But why is Trump so agitated? He is agitated because I think he is really scared about the Mueller investigation. Well, on which subject, Florence, the, the, the sacking of Jeff Sessions is is no great surprise, and by which I mean if it was no great surprise to me, I'm sure it was no great surprise to Robert Mueller, who must have factored in this possibility for quite a while. But does it actually matter? Because we are now in the position, are we not, where as if, if Robert Mueller's investigation is wound down, or Mueller is, certainly if Mueller is dismissed, then the Democrats will be in a position just to ask him to come and testify to Congress. 
Yeah, but it can still uh, still st- slow the process. I mean, if he doesn't have any more money to investigate, if, like uh, like uh, the Whitaker said, like the one who is in charge uh, from Jim, Jeff Session right now, uh, provisorily, if uh, he has someone who doesn't support him as Attorney General, I mean, it it can still be. But in the end, yes, you are right that the Democrats, if they want to fight this battle with Trump. Uh, which they may also not want to fight at the end, by the way. Uh, if they want to fight this battle, they, they have the, the means to do it. Um, I do want to return, uh, George, to the uh, the risk of being the media talking about itself. Damn it, we're going to do it anyway. Uh, to, to yesterday's press conference. Um, what have you made so far of the reaction of the rest of the White House press corps? There have been a few sort of harumphing statements in support of Jim Acosta, but have we reached or indeed passed the point at which they should just now make a point of not turning up and just leaving Trump or his representatives to yell at an empty room? I'm sure that some of them attempted to do that, but I don't think they can do that. However weird... However bad, however wrong, however unprecedented what is going on in the press room of the White House or anywhere else in the White House, the media still have an obligation to record what is happening. Now, there are lots and lots of arguments and questions begged about exactly how they should do that, but I don't think walking away is the answer. Florence, what do you think? If, if, if you were covering the White House and if you were in the position where press conferences were routinely turning into what they have turned into, and it's, it's not just Trump, it's, it's whenever Sarah Sanders in particular uh, takes the stand, would you either decide for yourself or on behalf of your, uh, your agency that there's, there's just no point in doing this? This is just a total waste of everybody's time. No, I agree with George. I mean, that, that would be an incentive to ask more questions, more embarrassing questions, more precise question uh, to to uh, to whoever has to answer them. And by the way, I mean it's very rare. I think it's only the third time that Trump is coming and giving th- that kind of uh, press conference. Uh, so it's uh, it, it wouldn't be a, a real change. Like, but definitely the journalists should stay and uh, and go on with their job. Okay, well, to return to the bigger story then, which is the the midterms and the the way they have changed America's political dynamic, I'm going to ask each of you in turn whether this makes you any more or less, I'll ask you first, George, any more or less optimistic uh, than you previously were about what the rest of Trump's presidency may hold. I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about it, but not a great deal. Um, Yes, the Democratic-controlled Congress can now investigate, call for evidence, you know, do a whole lot of stuff which people have been discussing for the last 24 hours that they weren't able to do before because they were in the minority. But they don't control the Senate. The president has powers um, that are independent of Congress to some degree, war-making powers in particular, certain amount on the diplomatic front. Uh, so I'm a little bit more optimistic, but it doesn't go very far. And, and Florence, on a, on a similar note, is there anything perhaps to the idea that, that Trump has been an, an accidental catalyst for progress? We saw record numbers of women elected yesterday, uh, some significant breakthroughs for various minorities. Um, not that Trump went out of his way uh, to make any of that happen, but he, it is kind of a response to him, isn't it? Yes, I, I hope it would have happened even without him. It's a kind of a dull view to 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 tell yourself you need a Trump to to have women's cause progressing, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, 
Yeah, on what's going to happen now, there is also a risk that there is kind of a, a permanent war between uh, Trump and the Democrats and a kind of, uh, you know, it, it's called like check and balance, like it can be reined in by the Democrats, but it can also come to kind of a standstill and then that uh, there are no laws adopted that uh, the Congress will in the end be, be blocked by this uh, counterweight. Uh, well, we shall move on now, uh, but not before noting that we will be looking at the ramifications of the midterms in greater detail on the Foreign Desk on Saturday at midday. Uh, but to France now, where President Emmanuel Macron has attempted the audacious manoeuvre in these hypersensitive times of suggesting that human beings contain multitudes and that a single person may be capable of both great bravery and great depravity. Specifically, Macron extended a measure of praise to Marshal Philippe Patin, a hero of the First World War and a villain of the second, to the extent that he died in prison, lucky to have avoided the firing squad for his treason. Um, Florence, first of all, uh, to Patan himself, what position does he now occupy in, in the French consciousness? The villain, definitely. <laughs> I think it's a very, very ambitious move by Macron uh, to try to to integrate and, and change what he calls himself uh, the roman national, like the national history of the country, by giving it like new elements. Okay, there was the acknowledgement before that Pétain was the great warrior of the First World War. This is not new, but nobody went so far, no other president before so far as to have the idea to integrate him in commemoration uh, because it, it's, it's too much, like, considering he was the one who sh- shook hands with Hitler. He was the one who uh, had this puppet regime of Vichy who collaborated with Germany. The, this, in, in the conscience of French people, this cannot be uh, erased, I think. Well, just to follow that up, this is what strikes me as the strangeness of it, because it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to imagine any Chancellor of Germany sort of musing on the fact that Hitler won the Iron Cross on the Western Front, which is true, but why would you go out of your way to point it out? Is there any particular reason why Macron would have said this? Because I think um, there is also this side of Pétain that uh, uh, he was followed by the French, at least that's what historians say, because they had this confidence in him because he was the great um, warrior of First World War. So in the, in the collective history, there are still some people who see him as uh, someone that, that has been uh, respectable. Uh, and he was... You know, there is regularly kind of attempts by the, the extreme right on some movement to rehabilitate him, but they are really a minority. So, I mean, I, I think, again, it's a very overambitious attempt to, to, to balance history. But the moment it shows, it's so badly chosen. This is a lack of political sense. Well, is, is it as simple as that, George? Has, has President Macron just underestimated, perhaps because he is of a younger generation for whom the war is an increasingly distant memory uh, how sensitive an issue this still is because th- there may be a case that Patan was a, a stout defender of Verdun in the First World War but it's 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 certainly I think the case that his historical reputation um, is has rather more on the debit side of the ledger than the credit side. Yeah and Macron was clear about what there was on the debit side of the ledger. I I honestly think this is a confected row. I really do. People enjoy a, outrage. A confected so, row in 2018? Well, perish, qu- well, ex- well, exactly. People love outrage, don't they? And you can always find somebody to be outraged. And I feel like defending any politician who tries to explain that there are some subtleties and some nuances. Because there are subtleties and nuances. Pétain's career 
which ended in complete and utter ignominy, is not entirely a career of ignominy. I think that's all he was trying to point out. Okay, he may not have done it as subtly as he should have done. Possibly he should have chosen another occasion to do it. But really, when a politician actually gets subtle, we should be cheering. <laughs> um, Florence, is Macron being a bit unfairly rounded upon here by opportunist opposition who've just picked up on any excuse to give him a bit of a kicking? Um, well, uh, I don't think so. Uh, th this is not any example, you know. You can be subtle, you can have a different view on what's a man's life and whether he has the right like, to have a good part and a bad part. I mean, as I said before, like other presidents acknowledge, there was uh, a good side uh, in the life of Pétain. But definitely, and in, in the history of France, I mean, he, w he was the villain. And the villainy, I mean, the deportation of Jews, I mean, all the, the help of the French Vichy government to deport Jews, the, 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 the active and enthusiastic help is something that nobody can, can forget. So I think, again, nuance, yes, but not not that way and, and not now. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't even say it's too early, but I mean, the role of Pétain in the Second World War will never be forgotten. I mean, is this still, though, that particular period in French history still seen as very much a, uh, a, a sensitive issue in, in French politics? No, it doesn't play such a role, uh, but it, it's still a symbol. And th there is uh, a TV series that uh, was realized and that was on TV uh, those last year uh, called uh, A Village in France about this history of collaboration and what happened after the war and who presented a nuanced version of it, like what it was to be a collaborator, why people would be collaborator, because it's kind of a moral issue too. So there is kind of uh, thinking about it. And this series, uh, TV series was very successful, but in, in, in politics, I wouldn't say it play a role. I mean, George, is there, a, I guess, a mirror of this here in the United Kingdom, which in the last couple of years in particular, since, since the Brexit vote, there has been, I think, spirited efforts by the pro-Brexit tendency to try and revive um, the, the 1940s and this, this, this idea Certainly, yeah. of, of, of Britain uh, standing heroically alone against the forces of darkness. Is, is, is it a, a, a global problem, I guess, a, a, simple, a simplistic understanding of history? I mean, you could yeah. argue that that's what Macron was trying possibly to address. I, I think he was certainly trying to address something like that. I certainly hope he was. Um, all politicians are probably guilty sooner or later, and goodness knows, so are journalists, <laughs> of occasionally oversimplifying things, partly because that's their job. Um, I'm, just, I'm just celebrating an occasion where, it, you know, he didn't go for the easy, simple, one-dimensional story. That's all. Uh, just as a final thought on this, uh, Florence, Macron's argument for this was that he said it's right that we honour the marshals who led France to victory uh, in the First World War. Is, is that how the war... That struck me as a strange choice of phrase, because is, is that how the war is seen in France as a victory? Uh, the First World War, yes. I mean, this was a moment of glory. In the end, we won. Uh, and also, you should think about the fact that it took years and years to, to the French to acknowledge the role of Pétain and what the collaboration was about. Because our uh, national history, our roman national, after Second World War, for years and decades, was that the goal arrived and we were held by the Americans. And then in the end, we, we won the war. And, uh, and we tended for, for decades to, to, to forget that, that dark period of, uh, of collaboration. So I, I think there is also th this aspect 
expect now. I mean, it's it's obvious to everyone what happened. Um, there is kind of a consensus on it, so nobody really wants to touch it again and uh, to, to go into this debate of Peter and so on. So that's why I think it was a bit risky by Macron to, to, to mention it. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with George Brock and Florence Biedemann. Coming up next, why Warsaw's Independence Day march has been indefinitely postponed. Tired of seeing the same few tedious tourist haunts? Well, the Monocle Travel Guide series has stopped off in 30-plus cities and counting in order to dispense advice on travelling like a local. From the finest spot in which to sip a cocktail with a contact, work up a sweat, or take a dip. Our comprehensive travel guide series are packed with tips, essays, and tidbits for getting the very best from your destination. Monocle's travel guide series is published by Gestalten. We've recently added Mexico City and Zurich, Basel, and Geneva to the library, with Athens and Helsinki coming soon, and guides to Chicago and Hamburg following early next year. The Monocle Travel Guide series. Cities are fun. Let's explore. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Molester. With me are Florence Biedemann and George Brock. Now, last year, an annual march in Warsaw in honour of Poland's Independence Day was overrun by chanting boneheads extolling the virtues of Aryan supremacy. Second World War history clearly not their strong suit. This year, Warsaw's mayor, Hanna Gronkowicz-Waltz, has decided there will be no repeat of this squalid spectacle and banned the march. Poland's president, Andrzej Duda, suggested that he will now organise a march, but the only banners permissible will be Poland own flag, as opposed to those associated with organisations which have at various times attempted to stop Poland's own flag from flying at all. Um, George, uh, the mayor of Warsaw, Hanna Gronkowicz-Waltz, is uh, from the party in opposition to the, the national government. Um, is this is this fair enough from her, just saying this, this, this isn't going to happen? I would have thought she was absolutely right. Um, you know, most countries, most states, uh, Britain included, have powers for people to say, if a march is going to happen and the, li- and the likelihood of violence is high, you can ban it. it you know, we do, that's occasionally happened in Britain. I'm not surprised it's happening in Warsaw. If she's the person with the power to make that judgment, seems to me there's plenty of evidence that she could have expected a very nasty march indeed. It's just possible they're going to try and hold it anyway, but I, th- I think she's doing her best. Um, well, on that question, uh, that if they try to hold it anyway... What sort of responses are available to the mayor of any city? Force, police, <laughs> <laughs> fights. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, they, they, they have more capacities to stop this demonstration than uh, to the people we want to organize it, to, 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 to have it. So definitely it, it will be uh, possible to, to stop this march. And if there is another march organized also, I mean, maybe in the end, I mean, who who will go to the extreme right march? The one you mentioned of last year, like there was lots of people. Mm. But the one this year, I mean, if people know that it's banned, I mean, it, it really should be like maybe some, some hundreds people. I don't know. I'm not the one to, to, to know, but there will be less people that, that would be willing to, to participate. I mean, it, it, it would be pleasant if the spectacle was reduced to something like we saw quite recently uh, here in Liverpool with the English Defence League. I think it, it was Liverpool, wasn't it? It was sort of reduced to about 12 people surrounded by about 10 times that many police uh, trying to stop the locals throwing things at them. I think that would justify the Mayor of Warsaw's <laughs> decision very well. Uh, but, but there is there is a wider question here, George, which is, is 
is why the far right uh, have come to see Eastern Europe, and I guess especially Poland and Hungary, as, as such fertile ground? Well, um, these were countries living under communism for a very long time. I think that changes political culture in all sorts of ways that um, at the western end of the continent we may find hard to understand. They seem to have, there seems to be a distinct appeal, Hungary and Poland being the current examples, for governments taking a more authoritarian line, um, harking back to bad historical examples, which is exactly what this march was intending to do. Um, I, I think, I mean, you know, my... There are at the same time in these political cultures people who want to move beyond that. It sounds to me as if the mayor of Warsaw and her party are among those among that number. I personally, I kind of, I really, really hope that Poland will get through this phase and return to being the splendid and brilliant country that it generally has been since the communists fell. Well, indeed, so. Um Florence, there has been a lot of talk recently, mostly in the context of the United States, about the degree to which the, the, the language and the tone of those in charge can influence behaviour uh, just in general. Um, is there an element of that in Poland? Is this a kind of blowback from the, the ruling Law and Justice Party's frequent invocation of nationalist sentiment? Yeah, they, they certainly have some uh, sympathy with that kind of movement because they were taking part in the, the demonstration last year. And uh, I think like Duda planned to, to, to be part of this demonstration so this year. So it's definitely there are some links uh, between uh, this right and extreme right, which is quite worrying. And I think this has been a movement in Poland since, since a while. Uh, George, where, where do you think the Law and Justice Party fall, though? Because I, I think there is a there's kind of a divide between politicians who invoke national sentiment, fully aware of the likelihood of uh, a, a violent or belligerent response in some quarters, uh, and then there are those who are possibly a bit careless and a bit irresponsible, but who invoke it anyway and then don't quite know what to do or how to respond uh, when they get that kind of reaction. Well, I think the truth the truth of the matter is that the Law and Justice Party is one of those parties that includes both elements. Um, and that's what makes the Polish situation particularly complicated. Um, the, there is, it is quite obviously a party which has a big political base in Poland. I mean, a perfectly real one. People freely vote for it mm. in large numbers. Um, they've been cultivating, you know, they've been making progress for a long time now they're in government. But parties like that... And again, there are other examples in the rest of Central, Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, parties like that have very, very nasty rightward fringes. And they don't spend much time cleaning those fringes out, or indeed worrying about them at all in some cases. Uh, Florence, is there, is there perhaps an indication here, or, or perhaps should there be an indication here, of, of something of, if, if you like, a liberal backlash? Because I think in, for most of the last 20 or 30 years, the, the centre-left, centre-right, liberal, democratic response to be extremists has been to err on the side of, let them have their march, let them express their ideas. Uh, you know, we, we will win this argument with reasoned debate. Have we reached the point at which some office holders, like, for example, the mayor of Warsaw, are within their rights to say, no, it's not happening? You can't not hear. Of course. I mean, you, you see that also in Germany. Uh, like, there is this... Uh this, this will to, to, to rein that kind of movement. But it's, I wouldn't say it's new. Uh, 
it's, it's not new, neither in, in Poland nor, nor elsewhere. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, in an age in which various parameters of identity have become regarded in certain quarters as malleable, adaptable and debatable, one enterprising Dutchman has found the reductio ad absurdum of the trend. Emil Rattelband, apparently a positivity trainer, is seeking to legally change his age and in so doing make his job description of positivity trainer only the second most ridiculous thing about him. Mr Rattelband is 69 years old, which he says is limiting his luck when applying for mortgages and on dating apps, though there is ample evidence to confirm that there is no law against lying about your age in the latter arena at least. Um, George, on, on, on that dividing line between uh, you know intellectual outlier with an interesting point and time-wasting attention seeker, wh- where are we placing Mr. Rattleband? Preposterous attention seeker. <laughs> right, right out there on the end of the spectrum, Andrew. What do you think? Um, completely absurd. You know, I, I hope for goodness sake the authorities, whoever the relevant ones are in the Netherlands, um, will say to him, you know, don't, don't be so silly. You know, um, people may wish at the moment to say they identify as X, but people identifying as men or women and so on and the complicated debate going on about that is partly a debate about evidence. Mm-hmm. This is something which, as far as I can see, Mr. Rattlebound hasn't quite got his, <laughs> got his mind around yet. And, uh, you know, if, you're, if the evidence is that, you're, that you are 69 and not... What does he want to be? 49? He wants to be 49. He wants to be 49. Um, then uh, there's a, he has an evidence problem. That, it seems to me, is the big roadblock here. I mean, what do you think, Florence? Has, has he, um, if possibly not deliberately, but has he found that that one absolutely immutable aspect of identity, the one that you can't just say, I am this? Because yes, he did. No, now, to me, he's kind of a genius, you know, because there is such a, a business, you know, like of staying young. I mean, you know, be it like uh, med- med- medication, whatever. There is this whole business now. You you should, you know, life expectancy is like up to 80 years old. So how are you going to stay young till, till 80? And this guy has an answer. And it could solve, you know, the problem of the pension systems, for example. He, he has, Because you wouldn't have to contribute anymore because people are young. He has, in Fairness promised to renounce his pension if he's granted the age he wants. But yeah, of course, the, ca- the can of worms he does then open up is what if people 20, 30 years younger decide they want to identify as pensionable age and therefore claim theirs? No, I, I think he just put his finger on one of the topics of, uh, of our time still, I, like how to stay young. And I don't understand what's going to happen. He identifies himself as 49 on Tinder, <laughs> goes out on a date... And I think it's going to be a bit obvious. In in fairness to him, just judging by the photos, he is in pretty good nick for 69. There well, is he might th- get away with sh- sh- shaving five years off, even th- 10 maybe. Tw- 20 is a stretch. 20 is ambitious. But uh, Florence, I'll ask you, is there somewhere in here a serious point, which is that people are living much longer than they used to. They're living much more healthy than they used to for a lot, lot longer. And this has happened fast. But we are still retiring people at roughly the same age that we we have for decades and decades and decades. T- we are telling people in their, as early in their 50s that, no, we won't offer you a mortgage. Do we really 
do we need to start rethinking what our definitions of young, middle-aged and old actually are? Yes, this is what the, the, the discussion this guy has started. No, I mean, I, I'm joking, but uh, of course, it, it's it's both absurd and not absurd what he's saying right now. I mean, what is like to what, what is to be this age he has now compared with what it was 20 years ago? There is a change. There are already changes in the pension system, as I say, like they, they are revamping all of this. But there are many other notions like uh, that, that you, you have uh, you have to change, not, not to the point of of extreme where he goes but still i mean we are talking about it i mean everybody talks about this guy and about this question so it, it rings a bell somewhere i think we should be alert to discriminate people discriminating quite needlessly about somebody on their age but i'm but on the whole i think i'm quite sensitive to this story because it happened to be my birthday yesterday i'm not quite as old as mr rattleband but, <laughs> but i'm getting on that way and you I, look 20 I, years younger. Thank you very much, Florence. <laughs> you you, you um, could totally pull off 49. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. <laughs> but the problem is, I think, is the older generation staying in the way, holding on to jobs. I don't, I, I, I'm very suspicious of this fantasy that people ought to be allowed to do whatever they like for as long as they like. Uh, indeed, they may be better at doing things and they may get healthier and who knows what medical science is going to do for us in the future. But that's different to occupying positions of power and leverage, which my generation has a tendency to cling on to, I think, a bit too long. Well, on, on that modest note, and with a, with a rousing uh, happy birthday for George Brock, that does bring us to the end of today's show. George Brock and Florence Biedemann, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delasanti. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, it's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200 with Paul Osborne. I'll be back with Midori House at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you for listening. 